Hi, my name is Marie Toombs and I'm a proud Uralii and Cooma woman and like about 3% of the Australian population are descendants of the oldest, longest surviving civilization in the world, dated at between 60 and 100,000 years. We as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are rich in spirit and diverse in cultures that make up over 250 different countries, also known as tribes, nations, but collectively it means the same thing. My countries are in northwestern New South Wales and western Queensland. I would like to take this opportunity to pay my respects to the traditional owners and continuing connection to this country. Today, we are all on Turrbal and Yagara lands and this place we call Mianjin, otherwise known as Brisbane. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and I would like to also acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast today. Welcome to the NAIDOC UQ Yarn Series, where I will be speaking with a range of talented Indigenous staff and students about what this year's theme, Hill Country, means, and the call for stronger measures to recognise, protect and maintain all aspects of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and our cultures. Today I have the privilege of speaking to Cameron Kalopi, who is a a countryman from the Gulf of Carpentaria up around the Normanton and Doomadgee area. So welcome, Cameron. Hi, morning. Morning. So Cameron, you are one of our uh, uh, provisional entry medical students who I've had the privilege of speaking to prior to this podcast and you're an absolutely amazing man and I'm, I'm super cool to hear and share your story with our listeners today. So before we get started, I'll just outline that um, we're really today focusing on our NAIDOC week series and Cameron will be obviously one of our speakers and the focus of NAIDOC this year is Heal Country, Heal Our Nation. So Cameron, whereabouts are you from? As in, um, I know Gulf of Carpentaria, Normanton, Doomadgee, but would you like to share a little bit about um, what it was like growing up there? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, the Gulf is a big place, so. Um, <laughs> um, the the, the Normanton kind of uh, area of the lower Gulf of Carpentaria, um, around the Normanton region. Um, so my uh, uh, mile from there is... Um, uh, Kusan clan, and um, and then my other side is Tanaquist from the Weeper region, um, just above the Wick people up in Cape York, uh, Western Cape York. Um, but growing up in the Gulf, that's where my mother's from. So um, I grew up around um, uh, amazingly strong women. Um, a lot of uh, my old uh, elders, my grandmothers, 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 grandmothers. I was lucky enough to kind of. Um, you know, be around them when I was younger, um, growing up in a remote area. I saw I saw the, the positive of it. A lot of people, when I've been to remote areas, a lot of kids think, oh, they're missing out because they're remote and they're not in the, the big cities and stuff. But as a kid, I saw I saw the asset. I saw the idea that I was able to expand my mind. Um, I wasn't restricted by skyscrapers and overstimulation. I was I had what I needed for for my brain to. Um, think about what I want to think about and become curious about what I wanted to be naturally curious about 
and that's my childhood was pretty much built around that nat- a natural building of of, of curiosity um, that was healthy and um, really hungry to get out into the world. Mm. So tell me about this curiosity because um, you've had this amazing life and yeah, and curiosity does seem to be a, a theme that features in this. So where did that curiosity come from? I think it's um, being grounded in, in, in my culture may be naturally curious because it's, a, it's, it's, it's quite mystical in a sense, you know, indigenous culture is so ancient that it, it, it wipes away um, things that aren't important and looks at the, and, you know, the big things that aren't important and looks at the little things that are, that are um, enormously, or enormously significant, um, like connection and, and how that river that goes through, you know, Kutan, the clan from the Gulf that I'm from, it's the uh, people from the three rivers. So we had our, our, our song lines were about those three rivers that connected through from saltwater to freshwater. And, um, all our stories are, are, have, have a natural kind of um, connection to being curious about our environment, of, but respectful for it. And, and, and um, yeah, just being around great elders and those type of things when I was, when I was young, um, I was kind of on the, I was on the cusp of um, the first generation, really, after the 67 referendum. Um, I was the first clean generation that could go past a year three education, you know, up in the Gulf area. So mm, um, yeah. there, there, were, there was testing grounds on trying to work out what worked and what didn't and a little bit of dysfunction in the sense that there was, um, uh, you know, my mother's generation that hadn't truly mastered it yet and then there was, well, now, Cameron, you know, you're... Your generation are the ones that are going to be able to kind of really go out and grab a hold of those things. So I had some really wise elders that were like, education is the way to go. The world is changing. Remember who you are. Always remember, you know, never forget who you are, but you need to go out now and, and adapt um, and learn and master this ever-changing world that, that we now find ourselves in. So that natural curiosity came from a number of directions, um, yeah. but mainly sitting down and you know, being on cattle stations. My uncle went to uh, boarding school in Brisbane, so he came back with these amazing stories of this world outside. And it just, he told, he, he did it in a really magical way um, that that um, made me use my imagination. So being naturally curious, having an imagination and believing in magic, I guess, was how it was sold to me as a little kid. And it, naturally i mean einstein touched on those things he said that the the most um yeah i'm paraphrasing he einstein said that um the highest form of intelligence is imagination you know and natural curiosity he said he, he said that uh, he referred to himself as not being um talented he just had um a great imagination and he was mm-hmm. naturally curious about his environment so that's where um that's where my, my natural curiosity came from so tell me, Cameron, you, you did go out into the big wide world and you went out with this amazing um, 
almost backpack of of curiosity but also this imagination and like you said this magical um, kind of stories that had been told to you and you ended up in Brisbane in a boarding school so would you like to share with the listeners what that part of your your journey looked like yeah it was I was straight from the bush the, the biggest place I'd been to was Mount Isa or Cairns you know and even then it was for a visit so Brisbane was um, was absolutely a clean slate. It was I, I didn't understand how the city worked, um, but that natural curiosity, always looking around my environment, seeing new things, and, and rather than being intimidated by them, it, I was hungry to interact with it because um, I'd built this natural um, hunger um, for stimulation on new, new things and new information and, and um, I, could, I would only become greater by being open to new experiences um, and I knew that that had to be at the forefront of my mind so I found um, uh, boarding school as uh, a good preparation stage for me to really um, dip my toes into this, this big world I'd heard about for so many you know the first 14 odd years 15 odd years of my life um, and then to kind of be in Brisbane at boarding school, I was like, okay, I'm here. Now with the clean slate, now I, you know, the pages of this book are, are now to be written. So I, I literally, that's how I viewed it. I viewed it as um, this is my story. Um, how it goes is up to me. All the good and all the bad. I'll write, I'll write it all and own it all. Um, and when times get tough, um, Expect that times will get tough, and I and I and I'll I'll um, you know have downers and have highs and stuff, but but it'll it'll all be a part of the same spectrum, I guess, of my my experience um, of me finding who Cameron is, you know. So I was I, I took it in strides. I, I was I was excited. Uh, about coming to boarding school because it was like, okay, now Cameron can write, you know, now I can write my own story. That's what was exciting about it. And so was it exciting when you went to boarding school? So this was the lead up. So you're now at a boarding school in Brisbane. So what what boarding school did you go to? Well, I went to St. Peter's over in Indrapilly. It's a Lutheran um, private school and um, the schools at home didn't go to the right high school didn't go to high school so we got to being remote area kids we got to pick a boarding school so most of my peers went to Mount Isa or Herberton or Atherton around the Atherton Tablelands or Townsville I decided I wanted to go where the biggest opportunity was and if it wasn't going to scare me then then I didn't I didn't want to do it so <laughs> I was I was that curious about the world that I was like I'm going to jump in head first. And what it throws at me, I'm going to be like, run at me. <laughs> so, so attitude. You know, cocky and young. You know, youth, oh, I you know, love it. You know, youth is wasted on the young, you know. <laughs> so you're at boarding school. So you're, you're up for the adventure. You're, you know, you're full of, full of this gusto for, um, you know, scaring yourself silly as well. And you're at St. Peter's Lutheran boarding school in Brisbane. So what happened next? Well, it, 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 I think if you go into the world, you go into life, 
um, like I did at that, that naively, highly intelligent young kid from the bush. It, highly intelligent in the sense that, that I, was, I was willing, I was open to experience. That'll always be a, a measurement of high intelligence, I believe. Hmm. Um, and once I kind of got there, it was everything that I thought it would, it would be. Because I was open to, I was open to experience. Uh, I think that's probably one of the greatest bits of advice I would, you know, I, I give to anybody is, you know, be open to to experiences, be open to to new things. Um, it's going to be scary, but but that's the fun of it. You know, if, if it doesn't give you butterflies, then you, then it's not scary enough. Yeah, you know. So, <laughs> you exactly sound like you're like a. You sound like an, an adrenaline junkie. Like I can imagine you on the scariest rides at Dreamworld or Movie World. I've just got this picture of you, sort of hands up in the air, going woohoo on the the big scary roller coasters. Actually, weirdly enough, weirdly enough, I'm not. I'm actually oh, really? not an adrenaline junkie. Yeah, what um, I think, I think um, um, the excitement comes in the form of, of learning new things. Like it really stimulated me on a, on a uh, spiritual, emotional, psychological, intellectual um, level, you know, this young, eager, hungry mind that kind of was like, I want to be the best that Cameron can be. Whatever that is, I don't know yet, but I'm open to experiences and I'm open to finding uh, uh, meaning you know, and we, 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 we know from the from the kind of some of the great philosophers, you know, they uh, in human history have touched on the the, the the meaning of life is, is responsibility. And through responsibility we find meaning. And through meaning we, we, we find purpose, you know, and then through purpose we find happiness and joy, you know. So I it was that I, it was simply that I, I just stripped everything away, and what I found was if I was willing to put myself in an environment that I was unsure of, but yet open to the experience, it it really gave me uh, it, that was a responsibility I put on myself, and it was a responsibility that I did willingly, and then I found meaning in that. Like, whoa, the meaning is I can be whatever I want to be, and whatever has formed me, molded me up till now, becomes secondary and I get to write a whole new script. So then through that meeting, um, before I had the intellectual capability to verbalize those, that, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. so it's, I realized that once I, I picked up that, that kind of responsibility that, hey, this book is now yours to write. This is your responsibility now. It, it was exciting because the book was mine to write, um, but then I found meaning in that, which was, well, the meaning of this is I can be whoever I want to be. Where to from here? I don't care, but I'm open to it. And then the purpose was um, that it, it really it really built a natural um, force of passion in my life where I... I did things that that really made me feel like I was alive, and that was an, an investment. Um, mm. 
in investments, you know. Yeah, absolutely. When we spoke last, you made a very profound comment to me um, in terms of um, another boarding school that you ended up in. And you said that the, the walls were seeping with racism. And for you, that was another chapter in your book um, where you, you took a completely different path. So I'm just wondering if you wanted to share with the listeners a bit about that part of your journey. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, when I finished grade 12 at St. Peter's, I went back to the golf and, and I, I just I wanted the dust to settle. I went home, I went back to the nest where I was safe. <laughs> and then I really graduated. <laughs> and, um, um, you know, because I had really great, uh, my grandmother, you know, the love of my life. So she, I went back to her and, and to her nest and she kind of wrapped me in safety. Then young Cameron was like, okay, why don't we just learn um, uh, you know, is there more to go? And the answer was yes. And so um, I ended up taking an offer to repeat at a, at, at a really uh, prominent private school, um, an all-boys school. Um, and I accepted and went and repeated grade 12. And, and it was uh, quite evident very, very early that there was um, institutionalized racism within that place. Um, and I couldn't study. I couldn't find. Um, I couldn't find my equilibrium. Um, and we and we know um, physiologically that that you know stress or hostile environment will actually. You won't think rationally. You can't think rationally when you you feel like your environment you are under threat in your environment. And and that was the kind of starting point too for me now later in life. And um, you know really loving medicine and really loving health and sciences. And how indigenous people, um, how our bodies react to environments that may not be safe or we perceive as not being safe. So um, it, it was it was difficult. I I I I couldn't concentrate in classes. Uh, my brain just seemed to not be functioning well. Uh, I didn't have that natural hunger or drive either to excel in that environment because um, the the hostile response that now I know in my body was what was happening um, was not making it a healthy environment for me to excel in. Um, so I left and um, ended up um, joining a squad over in Ballymore in Kelvin Grove, the Excellence in Rugby Union squad, where we actually did grade 12, but we all, but, but the other 50% uh, of the time we studied the game of rugby union. So I was very lucky that I... Um, I left that environment and I wasn't going to stay there. I had the courage to go, well, I'm a long way from home and I don't really have anywhere to go. So I left there and kind of probably was, was harmless for about a week or two, even at that, <laughs> that early stage because I had no no family in Brisbane. So I went to Newmarket and ended up staying at the um, Jadaro Aboriginal Student Hostel that I found by chance. Um, and I, um, I was lucky enough to make the Excellence Rugby Union squad and and very, very lucky that I got to train under the um, Queensland Reds and Wallaby players, which was the, the great um, Timmy uh, Holland and Jason Littles and um, legends of Australian rugby union and Wallabies and stuff. They were the Queensland Reds. So I kind of went from this hostile environment um, that I left and went to um, Newmarket and Kelvin Grove, Ballymore, and, and spent the rest of the, the year 
um, playing rugby, finishing grade 12 and um, I'm really kind of loving that new, that, that new more healthy environment anyway. Sure. Okay. And then what happened next? Were you signed? Like, were you getting, you know, big matches around Queensland or nationally? Like, what, what was the go? Well, it was, it was grooming you. We, we, we did everything. We studied, we, we studied the game of rugby as well. So we've got our, our coaching badges, our international referee badges. And um, it was to, to fully package you to then with the hopes of going to play in Queensland Reds and Wallabies and stuff. And um, at the same time, uh, right at the same time, I injured my left hamstring. I actually tore my left hamstring because I was doing track and field at the same time. So um, I uh, I ended up um, having a little bit of time off with the injury and I reverted to something I was always in the background, which was music. Music was my first love as a kid. My mum was 15 when she had me, so... She was still trying to learn how to be a young woman herself uh, without being, without raising a, a baby. Um, so as a child back in the golf way, she used, music was my escape mechanism. I was able to, I can remember writing songs when I was in kindergarten. Um, I was, uh, my, I think my first love was in kindergarten because she, she looked at me from across the kindergarten room, so I was in love with it. <laughs> and I would go home and write, write songs. Yeah, so were they home. love songs, Cameron? Like, what sort of songs oh, were they? Oh, look, let's, let's, if this is a truthful conversation, well, yes, they were. They know? were. Um, oh. I, was just, I was just infatuated by this, this girl. And, um, she what was, was her a, name? Was Come on. You, you her, name, have... her name was Rebecca. Her name was Rebecca. Rebecca. She was the bank manager's daughter, yeah. <laughs> I and, love um, it. Um, and I, I remember going home and writing songs and it was, um, music really was a big part of my, my life in a sense. It, 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 while I was buying time for, to be big enough to go to the city, music allowed me to um, create this world um, where Rebecca and I get old and we get married and, <laughs> you know, and I write it in songs and, you know, it, it was, uh, it, 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 I, I, I got back in the, I didn't get back into music. I was doing music the whole time. Um, but it was, it was a comfort mechanism for me to, um, through the years from when I first came to Brisbane. So, um, I started, um, I decided to create a, a group and we, and, um, we we formed during that time, and um, it naturally sparked this really um, big reality check that all of a sudden I didn't need to be a kid in the middle of the bush writing songs. Now, now all of a sudden, there's places here where you could actually do something with that skill. So, mm. I formed a group, and um, that I call Native Rhyme Syndicate. I remember. Um, I was copying Ice T's rhyme syndicate. <laughs> I call it. Yeah, it, the indigenous version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so um, uh, yeah, I started performing, performing around Brisbane and knocking on doors, and and nobody really kind of. I remember knocking on doors and people not really um, being interested. And uh, I I remember um, going to venues that did live acts, and I would say. Um, I'm with this 
uh, Aboriginal rap group and we want to kind of do, see if we can get a gig and they'd say, look, I'm sorry to break this to you, but one, <clears throat> nobody wants to hear rap in Australia and two, nobody wants to hear Aboriginal rap in Australia. And I'd go, are you sure? And they'd say, yeah, you know, in a, in a not so nice way. And I'd say, okay. So what year was be... this, Cameron? This was, um, I'd say about 94, 95. Ah, so yeah. you were well before your time and a long way from the love songs and lyrics of Rebecca at this stage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, it was... Um, It was still my mindset was still in the mindset of um, open openness to experience, you know. So I, I I remember saying to the venues and these managers for concerts and festivals that told me all the same thing. Nobody wanted to hear rap in Australia, and nobody wanted to hear Aboriginal rap. Um, and those were the words that were used. Instead of taking taking that personally, I was like, okay, you're only saying that because you haven't heard us yet. <laughs> you know. I love it. So. I went back a week, I, I went, and I'm telling you, this is 100% truth, I went back to each one of these managers or concert venues or nightclubs every week, non-stop, and I would knock on the door, you know, mm. metaphorically knock on the door and go in and, and um, they'd say, oh, you again? And I'd say, yeah, um, I've got this group and we're really, really good. <laughs> and they'd say, well, I told you last week, nobody wants to hear rap, no one, nobody wants to hear Aboriginal rap. And this went on, sometimes this went on for, for months before um, the venue managers would say, and it only took one or two, all, all I needed was to crack one or two. Hmm. Um, and when the first one said, look, if I give you guys a shot, would you, will you leave me alone? Will you stop, like, will you stop bu bugging <laughs> me? Yeah. Will you stop bugging me? And I was like, sure. And um, we got our first gig, and um, so I said, we'll do for free, because he was like, we're not paying you anything, and I'm like, you don't need to. Um, but when you like us, you, you, you'll pay us. And that, that was my thought in my head, you know. Um, and uh, we did our very first gig, and um, the same manager that told us it would never work came up, came up to us and said, um, wow, you guys are really, really good. That wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I'm like, huh, interesting, man, huh? And, and we ended up getting residencies in the places that said it would never work. They would give us residencies and we, um, we would play every week. And, um, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we, we started doing the big day outs and lyric festivals. And, um, you know, we performed at Star City in Sydney and we, we started doing specials for uh, Triple J and Fox. Um, uh, MTV and, and Channel V and and, um, and then four years later we, 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 we won our first National Music Award and that was kind of um, we became um, and we'd heard of young groups coming we heard of other groups coming through like Hilltop Hoods and stuff but they were really struggling on the outer, outer ends of the music industry we were pushing through the mainstream so that's what the opportunity was um, and and uh, yeah, so nine nine ninety eight we won the first music award and and um and it went crazy. Um all of a sudden we had more shows than we knew what to do. We were making great money, um and doing meeting our idols and we got uh we got a deal to move to, to London, uh we got off offered deals to move to New York and LA, um and it 
it wasn't surprising to us because we'd done the work, you know, mm-hmm. we'd done a lot of things that were were expected of us if we yeah. really wanted to be the best version of artists that we could be and who Cameron... And you were. Cameron, like I did a Google search stalk on you and it, it, it's just incredible what you achieved and, and yeah, I... I mean, I'm almost in front of rap royalty here. So well done, you. <laughs> and it's an amazing story of not giving up, you know, that whole young boy from the Gulf and, you know, music already in your heart and in your spirit. And then this, you know, this adventure and this magic that you take with you to the city. And, you know, here you are as a, a national rap, you know, Indigenous rap folk hero. So, what happened next? Well, weirdly enough, during a lot of that time, I was homeless. Yeah. It was so people find it very hard to think that. Well, I had to, you know, we have to remind ourselves in the story that I had no family in Brisbane, so I had nowhere to kind of go to. Um, in them, especially in the earlier stages, I I would go and do shows at these places that we had residencies, and these were big mainstream clubs. Like it was unheard of. Um, uh, indigenous people were still, you know, being pushed to the outer alleyways of New Farm in the Valley and, you know, um, Musgrave and those sort of places. We, you know, the idea you saw young Aboriginal kids on stage in these big mainstream venues in the middle of Brisbane CBD was quite revolutionary, I think, you know, just in this. My thing was, um, it still, it was shocking me that people would come to me and say, you're the first Aboriginal person I've ever met. And I'm like, I think that you probably have met a lot more. <laughs> you, you just, your perception is that you, you haven't, you know. Um, you, your boss probably is Aboriginal. You just don't know, you know, or you, it's not pushing your face or whatever. And so I thought, well, what we're going to do here is we're just going to work on um, environmental perce- perceptions, I guess. Let's use our music as a means to be able to Consciously and subconsciously sneak through the image of Indigenous Australia, Aboriginal Queensland, into these big mainstream venues, so that when um, so people get um, first-hand uh, interactions with with Aboriginal people, because I felt like we were quite separate, and that was due to past behaviours and past policies and no one really knew how to go forward. Um, so mm-hmm. we used music for that. And I mean, I mean, I used to do these clubs and I literally would walk out and everyone's praising me and saying, my God, what a great show tonight. And I'd leave and go to King George Square where I slept on a park bench and I would go back to bed mm-hmm. at, you know, one, two, three in the morning. And, um, and at the time I was thinking, well, Cameron, this is not really that big a deal. Um, cause this is how it is now. You're not going to do yourselves any favour. You're not doing yourself any favours by coming back to a park bench that you knew you were coming back to. So let's not be surprised about this. Um, and that's, you, you, you're, this is obviously happening because you, le- you need to learn something. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the time taking that path in how I viewed my situation and said to myself, let's learn what, let's learn something from this because this is, just probably one page or one chapter of the overall book that we're still writing. So let's think about one day we're going to get to the end of this book 
when we read through again, how do we want to how do we want to see ourselves? How do we want to look back at the end of this book when we were, when we were an old guy, God hoping that when we were an old guy, <laughs> and we go back and read through or we tell the story of this just written in this book that we you know that we've um, sat and wrote word by word. How do we want to look back on this time? Do you want to look back and say, "Oh my God, I, I didn't handle that well at all," or "Oh my God, I, I you know." And there's an old saying, you know, I'm paraphrasing again, of course, but, um, you know, a man shows his character when he's under high stress or something like that. Mm. You know, mm. your true colors come out when you're under high stress, anybody. Um, uh, and also confidence. Um, I saw a quote recently about confidence that says that um, uh, a man's character will come out um when he's confident, now whether his character is not a nice character or it's an amazingly benevolent character, um, it will come out when someone holds confidence, whether it's fake confidence or true confidence. But if someone holds confidence, they'll, it'll, it'll magnify their attributes. Mm. So I was confident when I was on the streets. Like I want to really, really emphasize that um, even while I was homeless, I was confident. I was confident in the fact that I trusted myself to be able to take, to handle it, that I wasn't going to fall apart. Did I almost fall apart a few times? Of course. But I was confident enough to know, trust myself that I had chosen to see that particular experience I was going through as something to learn from. So I, then, then again, what, you know, if I look back, I took on, I placed that responsibility on myself. So we come back to the word responsibility again. I took on that responsibility and said, this is, bro, this is up to you. There's nobody here. It's three o'clock in the morning. It's three degrees. It's the middle of winter, you're freezing. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And that just, yeah, I, I found that I had to think like that. Um, um, because of my early years in life, I was, this natural building of curiosity and magic and, and, and be open to experiences. That was an experience. It wasn't a nice experience, but I had to be open to it. Like I had mm. to be, you can't have, you can't be open to good and not be open to bad. They have to balance each other. So I'm, I'm a kind of secret student of Carl Jung. So I, <laughs> I talk about the balance. Mm. Um, it sounds like there's a great dose of, of resilience in there for you as well and um yeah i mean you must have you must have dug deep because what was the turning point so you know you're homeless you're in king george square um you've got your own park bench um, may i mention so <laughs> which you um, <laughs> you, um oh, there's rules. There's the rules resident the addressed <laughs> yeah there's rules there's rules yeah. in that chaos. It, look, it oh. might look like chaos on the outside, but there there are rules. If that's your park bench, that's yours. Wow. Nobody else can. Yeah, it's fully reserved for the amount of time that you want to call it home. So, um, yeah, I didn't have to. I, I had a resident. Mm. I had a residency. It was just a park bench. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so what happened next? Because you're at the University of Queensland, you're going to be a magnificent, magical, curious doctor when you graduate. So how did that happen? So we've gone from um, national rap artist, like thank you very much. We've been on a park bench, uh, 
permanent resident, by the way, for two years, and now we're we're a medical, well, a provisional medical student at UQ. So how did that happen? I think um, when when I'm asked that question, the the first thing that comes to my mind is um, curiosity. That was always around me, like it it was always in my mind. I, I never would do anything. Weirdly enough, I'll say, one of my favorite sayings is I'll never do anything that I don't really feel a passion for. But the truth is, like, um, I don't think I'd find anything that I didn't want to do because um, you, you, when you're naturally curious and open to experience, you'll even find, like, I didn't want to be homeless. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, 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 I breeze over that, but, and I talk about it like it was, you know, something, um, some sort of experience that, uh, I glaze over, but it, 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 I didn't want to be homeless, but it was an experience that I was, uh, uh, it was going to take a lot of, it was going to be an enormous force to change that. But I, so I was open to it. I was open to look at, looking at that, what that force was going to be. And it meant some type of um, persistence, you know, some type of constant force hmm. um, that was going to change that. Um, I, when I was actually having one of my very rare down moments, and there were a few, but when I was in Ten York Square, I remember um, I walked around the block and I was thinking, well, I haven't eaten for quite a while and um, now it's affecting my brain and I, I'm not thinking really all that clearly. And, and I thought, um, and being truly homeless, like I didn't have it anywhere um, to go. Um, I, I, um, this is a story that I share with the people and I'll share today. Um, I thought, and I want this to be an honest conversation, um, in all of its uh, light and darkness. Um, I thought, well, on the streets, you know, if, if it gets really, really bad, then you go to jail. Um, jaywalker, do something quite simple, um, and then go to jail and you'll get three meals and a warm bed. And that's the end of the thing. So I thought, well, you know, this is maybe what I need to do um, because this is really getting difficult. And I remember I walked around the block and I said to myself, what if you don't, and I remember talking to my old people in my head, my great grandmother and stuff, I'd say, Nana, if <laughs> I, I'd say to her, I'd, I'd say, Nana, if you don't, if, 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 if this is not what I should be doing, like someone needs to show me something, it can't be like a, a leaf blowing across my foot. Like, I want a real sign here. Someone needs to help me out <laughs> because I'm by myself. I'm by myself and I, I need something significant. It's got to be something real. And I'm walking around the block. I said, you, you, you all got to block to, to show me something or I'm going to the police beat and, and uh, you know, mm. I'll, I'll say something that will get me a, a bed and three meals. And... Um, I walked down King George Square and uh, sorry, I walked down Queen Street Mall and and um, looking at the ground and I was thinking, show me something, show me something, and I I looked forward and these hands came out of nowhere and they they kind of shuffled me out of the way, and I looked up and it was about fifteen Queensland police officers, <sighs> and I and I thought, well, okay, if this is the sign, <laughs> well. You brought them to me? Like, really? Really? 
um, and I looked past them, and they went. Some of them went either side of me, and I looked in front of me, and um, the great, I think it was like two or three time Oscar winning, one of the greatest actors of all time, Charlton Heston, was standing there. Are you serious? Yeah. And oh, I, my, my grandmother goodness. was a strong my grandmother was a strong Christian, so um, she I grew up watching Moses. So all of a sudden Moses, the, the water parts, the blue water parts <laughs> while he frees them, and Moses is standing there. <laughs> oh, this and is brilliant. I, I thought I thought metaphorically like this is gold. <laughs> like you know, like I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't symbolically think of a bigger sign. The waters parted, and he is Moses in the middle of the Queen Street Mall. And I, I knew straight away who he was. And um, he was here doing a, a book signing in um, the Maya Center, so I could track down what that date was somewhere, but I can't remember exactly what the date was. But um, he was in Brisbane for a day to sign his books. And he made a bit of the news that he was rude to some people or something. But anyway, that's not my story. Um, <laughs> so, see, so he's Moses in front of me. And I was like, oh, well, if you want the sign. There it is. is it. <laughs> and I remember I was quite sad. And then I saw him and I thought, whoa, Moses. And then two, Charlton Heston, um, Ben Hur, you know, like, mm. whoa. And I said to him, good morning, sir. That's the only thing I could think of. I was, I, was, I was like, good morning, sir. And he was like, good morning. And he looked at me and he said, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And I looked at him and I said, yes. And then he just walked past me. And I thought, it's a beautiful day. And I, instead of going right to the police beat, I turned left and went back to King George Square and was like, all right. Well done. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, and I just kind of thought, well... Yeah, and it, it, it just, um, you know, I, I think it's kind of symbolically being open to, open, again, open to experience. I was like, um, you know, obviously I was trying to find something so that I wouldn't go down that, that other path, which thankfully didn't happen. Um, but um, I just, um, I ended up finding um, that Ellie Bennett, Aboriginal men's hostel in the, new, in the valley new farm had a spare room. Um, I walked into the valley, and um, they, uh, they they got me a room, and I, I rebuilt my life from there. We know when it comes to homeless people that you don't get them jobs to get them off the street. You don't you don't get them a shower to get them off the street. You don't you don't put them in a room with people doing great one-line speeches to get on the streets, you, you give them a, a warm, safe bed, you give, you give them a home and they can rebuild from there. But it can't be the other way around. You have to give someone that safety. So all of a sudden the environment, you've solved the idea of the environment being hostile to them. You have to, you have to put them in a place where they feel like their environment is now safe. And any human being can build back from that. So any stress you go through in your life, one thing I've learned is that limit the hostility around you whether it's hostility against yourself in your own mind, find a way to limit that. Um, and when you find that safety, even within your own thoughts, you can build from there. It doesn't matter how, how down you are. So that's the mentality. I thought after I saw Moses, 
um, <laughs> it kind of rewarded for me. I was like, whoa. And I symbolically walked across, you know, it's kind of weird. You know, I've never worded it like that until this conversation. But, you know, the, the blue police officers parted ways and then Moses is in the middle. And, and um, I, I mm-hmm. ch- my brain chose to see that that way that I, oh, okay. You know, just the simple things of kind words, like like um, him saying, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And I just thought it is. Like, it's how we perceive the world, you know? So uh, I built from there and and um, ended up earning my stripes in the music industry and, you know, obviously kind of eventually getting my own places. And um, I uh, ended up making a really uh, prominent name in the music industry based on trust. Um, that if people could trust you in business and people could trust you um, to hold up your end of the bargain and do it in a, um, conduct yourself in an appropriate manner, no matter how high the level of stress were, well then um, you'll go a long way. And um, so that's when I started getting calls from people like Snoop Dogg and um, Snoop Dogg hired me personally to, to be um, kind of like his agent, but it was about uh, everything that Snoop does um, he has to get paid for, so that was my job. So I would find myself collecting all this money for Snoop. So I, I showed my previous partner at one point. I showed her my bank account, and it was all of Snoop's money in there. And she nearly fell off her chair. I was like, "You would never, you would never believe it unless you saw that kind of money, huh?" She said, "Yeah." And I'd collected, and I was trusted enough to, um, I'd hold on to, you know, six, seven figures for him, and then get it over to the States or meet up in person and, you know, those type of things. And and through Snoop, um, that was about a three-year relationship. Um, and then from Snoop, all the other big names came knocking, like Snoop and Justin Bieber are very good friends. So um, there was times when I got calls from Justin Bieber. You know, past Snoop and his guys would call me first and say, um, hey, Justin's here. Um, or they didn't say Justin first. They said to me, well... Um, he is a, uh, a friend of ours is not far where you are at the moment. Um, would you mind if we pass your number on uh, because you trust you and stuff um, just to look after him. He wants to go out. He wants to do some things. And, um, and I said, sure. And um, I didn't ask who because it wasn't my place to ask. That's, that's the kind of relationship we used to have. And um, at the end of the call, I said, oh, we'll just tell you it's, it's Justin, Justin Bieber. He'll, he's going to call you on the number. So that was my that was my life for quite a while, and it was exciting, and I was like, "Whoa!" and um, really living life. Um, it, it was magical, like it was honestly magical. And then more names came because they knew that Snoop vouched for me. Well, then you know the Kardashians came, and Kylie and Kendall Jenner, you know they came, and um, Nellies and um, Johnny Depp on the Gold Coast, you know, and. Um, People would call me, and and as I'm going along, my heart is telling me more and more. It's pulling me in a different direction. And um, people ask me, how was the time at that level with Snoop Dogs and people like that? And I said, it was everything that I wanted it to be. It was beautifully, magnificently magical. Everything you think that life is going to be, it was. But it didn't but it got to a point where it wasn't satisfying my heart and my spirit. 
and I wanted to. It was very ego driven, um, where you could the money you could make is is actually it's it should be against the law. The amount of money that these artists make and celebrities make was in, and I was just swimming in money. But it wasn't satisfying me. It was it, it actually felt like uh, an ego trip. Um, it was getting a bit away from the kid from the bush that believed in magic mm. and wanted to go out and create magic but also um, share that magic. Um, it, that life with Snoop and stuff was great, but it was hoarding magic. We'd shared the magic of Snoop or we'd shared the magic of these artists or celebrities and then we'd hoard it again like a commodity. And it never sat well, well with me being indigenous to it. I really struggled with it because I was making more money than the law should allow, but it was, um, it was, it went against the grain. My wood grain went in a different direction. Like I wanted to share things, and um, it, uh, I ended up hurting my right shoulder and um, a, a, a type two slap tear uh, in my right shoulder. So I, I tore my right bicep off the bone, and. Um, and I spent time with a surgeon called Dr. Kelly McGrody up at Brisbane Private um, for a number of years because I, I broke the, the tendon and recovery again, the stitches. And um, just to answer, how did we get to kind of UQ? How did mm. we kind of get to the whole medicine thing? Um, I went through, um, I couldn't use my right arm for quite a while. And it, it was like I needed to be disarmed for a while to actually remind myself what is it that I'm looking for? What is it? What's this chapter in my book that I'm, it, it keeps nudging me back towards. And um, I remember sitting in his waiting room and a guy came across to me who was looked fairly well and he said, um, don't worry. He whispered to me out of the blue. He said, don't worry, mate. Um, he's very good. He'll give you your life back. And I just, and that unusual because uh, it reminded me when I was sleeping on the park bench in King George Square, it was about three degrees in the middle of winter and I was freezing. I had T-shirts and shorts on. And this, when, when I was just starting to think I might lose my faith in humanity a little bit, just in my place within humanity, because you go there, you know, being human, you, you're not immune to those feelings at times. Uh, this guy woke me up and I looked up at him and he said, um, are you cold, brother? And uh, this guy wasn't indigenous, he was from other um, ethnic background. And he said, are you cold? And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't have much. He said, but you can have these. And he gave me his gloves. Mm. And I was like, it just, it just reminded me, okay, there's a reason for this. We don't know what it is yet, but people can, you know, as human beings, we can be kind to each other. We can give um, to benefit someone else. And that was always in my heart. So when I was in that waiting room, that guy said to me, don't worry, um, he's really good, he'll, he'll get your life back. It, it, it correlated with that time on that park bench in, in a really significant way. And then Dr. Kelly McGrody came out, he's an orthopedic surgeon, um, and uh, I looked at him and I just thought, I looked around at all these broken, predominantly men with work injuries and broken this and that and and I thought that's that's what I want I want to be able to do something that's going to be a benefit 
to society and benefit to humanity and benefit to my community and benefit to my state and my nation if I can do something that's going to benefit people um, then that's what I want to do and, and here I decided you are. <laughs> yeah yeah that's I just decided that's what I want to do I just I, I just decided I always loved science I think Einstein touched on the idea that, that intelligence is measured, you know, the height of intelligence is measured by imagination and curiosity and believing in magic. He, he got turned down from his, you know, uh, professor placement, uh, associate professor placement, um, because I think I read an old note saying that he was too imaginary. He believed in, he believed in magic too much. Um, <clears throat> but some university turned him down. Um, you know, and Einstein, well, the rest is history, you know, but mm. um, I, yeah, I, I just I just knew that um, if I followed my natural intuition to be naturally curious about the world around me, I knew that that had a natural, um, uh, what's the word, uh, affinity with science. I mm. knew that, that science, you know, would would demand it that that you ask yourself those questions. You know, what's your place? What's what's going on here? Well, we don't know what's going on in this reaction um, at this level, but we uh, we're not. You know, you you need to be naturally curious. That's how we've had the breakthrough that it benefits humanity. So that's you know, when people ask me today, how how did you do, how did you get up from uh, 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 you know. Not only a park bench in King George Square, but how do you go from a, a, a homeless men's hostel shelter in, in New Farm, Portage Valley, to, you know, Faculty of Medicine? Um, it, 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 the drive was, was pushed by natural curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I think as Indigenous people, we, we have that that real, true, natural hunger for curiosity because we haven't survived for 80,000 plus years on probably the most hostile, uh, the most um, the most demanding continent of, of all the continents if we weren't naturally curious about our environment. You know, and I think we have that, we, we have that written into our DNA and it just takes reminding ourselves who we are that will then bring about all the positive attributes that actually come from being naturally curious about your environment. Like it, 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 it makes you chase dreams. It makes you chase something greater than yourself. You know, curiosity can isn't really a, isn't really corrupted. It can't be corrupted because it's so personal. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. really leave you. It, it it can't be taken out of you and corrupted and resold back to you or packaged to you. You know, and I know that because I had that with the Snoop in the music industry. I had all the money in the world, um, but it couldn't touch my natural indigenous curiosity for my environment. Like it, it couldn't, it couldn't feed that. And was, I think that's yeah. DNA to us, isn't it? Like it, it's, 
there's work that I do around, you know, mental health and um, working with traditional healers. Like it's so centered in who we are as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And, and it's not something you can see outwardly, but it's something that you know internally. And I love your comment about, you know, we haven't survived on this continent for the last, you know, 60, 80, 100,000 years um, without being curious about our environment. And I think that's an absolutely beautiful way to end this podcast today. So I just want to thank you so much for your contribution and sharing your amazing story with us. You're an amazing human being and I can't wait to see what happens next. So you're currently in your first year. Um, no, second. Oh, second, oh, second yeah. year, with, with my the, apologies. With, with the whole faculty of medicine, yeah. I've, I've, um, I've jumped through all the hoops and... Um, <laughs> You know, because I finished grade 12 quite a while ago, I had to redo it all again. I, I, I went to TAFE first, but I tried to do the ATP, and that, was a dip, that wasn't a very um, positive environment for me personally, my personal preference on how to learn. Um, but I jumped through hoops and went to UQ College and, and redid my, my, my prereqs to, get, to actually get into uni. So it was a lot of jumping through hoops, but it was exciting because I knew that I was moving towards something that actually... I had a, a real curiosity for and a real, and you know, I found a real um, possibility of um, doing something that's going to be greater than myself. So it was exciting, even though I, I jumped through so many hoops to get to this conversation with you today. Every one of those steps really uh, cemented um, that this was a part of me. So I'm, we, you know, as, like Beethoven said, I'm not by coincidence. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And like I said, I can't wait to hear what the next adventure or next chapter, next page, next moment brings for Cameron Callipy. So watch this space universe because I think we're in for a ride here. <laughs> so thanks, Cameron. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you.